So good to see you this morning. Thank you for being here. I invite you to open your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. Should be easy in our Bibles to find. We recently passed through this territory in our scheduled daily Bible reading. And whether you read that along with us or not, I'd like to go back there with you. In search of solid ground, strong foundation. It was not originally, of course, my foundation or your foundation. It was someone else's. But when we are seeking to build and build well, at times it pays off to look at the foundation of others that has already been laid. And I'd I'd like to do that with you this morning. We have a number of guests with us, as has already been mentioned. Welcome. We're glad that you're here. We've been blessed with such a beautiful morning. And I hope that our time in God's Word will make you think and challenge you, even as it challenges me this morning. And I hope, above all, it draws us closer to this one we've been singing about, who is willing and able perfectly lead us. In Genesis chapter 37, we are introduced to um, a young man, and we won't linger long in Genesis 37, but it helps us to set the stage. His name was Joseph, and he was young. He was just 17 years old when his life was completely turned upside down. Genesis 37 verse 2 tells us that he was pasturing the flock that belonged to his father with his brothers. And he did not have a good relationship with his brothers. In fact, that is an understatement. He was hated by his brothers. When his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than he loved everyone else. In fact, they hated him so much, verse 4 tells us, they just could not speak peacefully to him. Verse 11 describes them as being absolutely filled with and consumed with jealousy. So much jealousy that as we skip down to verse 20, we find that they almost decide to kill their younger brother, Joseph. We hear them in verse 20 saying, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. Eventually older, a little more mature, perhaps a little wiser, looking ahead, the oldest brother says, we shouldn't kill him. Maybe we could sell him. And so in verse 26, the question is asked by the group, what profit is it if we we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And a a plot is hatched to cover their tracks. They take that 
cherished robe of many colors that that doting father had given to his youngest favorite son and they shred that up and they they dip it in blood and after their brother has been carried who knows where they bring that colorful robe back to their father and Jacob assumes that his favorite son is dead we hear him in verse 33 it is my son's robe a fierce animal has devoured him Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces you turn perhaps a page over in your Bible to Genesis chapter 39 and we eventually begin following Joseph all the way down to Egypt hundreds and hundreds of miles away from home he is brought down Genesis 39 and verse 1 he is sold to a man named Potiphar an officer of Pharaoh the captain of the guard an Egyptian this is the man, a powerful man that has bought Joseph from the Ishmaelites who had brought him all the way down there. And I realize that we've moved very quickly through this young man's life as it is turned completely upside down. But I do all of that to draw attention really to one big thing this morning. In fact, it is the most important thing about Joseph that I want to see and I want you to see from Scripture this morning. If you were going to, to, to take a stab at that, you know, is it the fact that he was his father's favorite? Was, was that the most important thing about him? Uh, was it that there was this family dysfunction and, and Joseph, for better or worse, is taking the brunt of all of that? Is it the fact that he's been carried a long ways away from home? Is the most important thing about Joseph that he is a slave? Or now he's in a foreign land and perhaps it is fortunate that he has landed in the house of a pretty important man. None of that, none of it, is the most important thing about this young man. But we do know what it is if we look at Genesis chapter 39 and verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. And I'd encourage you to, to take that and just... Put it in your pocket or put it in the back of your mind for the next few minutes. That is the most important thing here. Now, let's dispel with this myth that continues to live on in the 21st century that, well, if the Lord is with me, that means my life is going to go exactly the way that I wish it would go. If I come and I give God a little bit and, and enough of my devotion or my money or my attention, my time, what, whatever it is, if I give God enough for him to be with me, that will mean then that life is going to be good for me. 
there have been many New York Times bestseller books selling that myth. We don't find that in the Bible. In fact, we don't find that in this young man's life. Eventually, years, years later, he will say to his brothers, not sugarcoating at all, you had evil in your hearts. You had evil in your hearts against me. And you opened those hearts and gave full vent to those hearts. And that evil that you had in your heart was very much directed at me. You meant evil against me. You worked evil against me. Now you read the rest of the story and, and we see beautifully so how, how God used that evil to save a whole lot of people in Egypt and far beyond. But what I want you to see this morning is, what's the most important thing about Joseph? The Lord was with him. But that does not mean that he is immune from the sins of others. And it does not mean that he had a shield from all temptation. And so in Genesis chapter 39, after a time, we're not specifically told how long Joseph has been in Egypt, but this is what we are told. You remember the name of his master now, Potiphar, an official of Pharaoh, a, a, a captain of Pharaoh's guard. Potiphar has a wife. And after a time, she, Genesis 39 and verse 6, notices something. Joseph is handsome in form and appearance. And so his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph. Now, we're told what she says next, but slow down for just a little moment and think about that phrase, she cast her eyes. And that's another thing that would be good for us to tuck in our back pockets as we read the Bible because I would suggest to you the more that you can notice and remember that phrase, you will see over and over and over again. Here is the well-worn path to danger. We read about men and women in God's holy revelation to mankind and this over and over and over again is step one. I lift up my eyes, I cast my eyes, I see something, and something begins to percolate in my heart. And so we could go to page three of the Bible and notice awfully familiar, similar language. 
Do you remember how this serpent slithers into paradise? He's described as crafty, more crafty than any other beast of the field. And he begins reasoning with Eve, suggesting to Eve, lying to Eve as he outright refutes what Eve knows the Holy Creator has said. But he talks with her enough, long enough, alluringly enough that she sees. She sees that the tree is good. That looks like it would be satisfying. And in fact, I... The, the longer that I look at it, the more delightful to my eyes it appears. And the more that I think in my heart about what it would be like to enjoy that, the more desirable it seems to be. And so she took. And again, if we just slow down long enough to to really think about what God is telling us and the language that he uses, something really, really, really important is being revealed. Here it is. When my satisfaction and my delight and my desire means more to me than God, it's only a matter of time before sin is born. When my satisfaction, my delight, my desire means more to me than God, it is only a matter of time before sin is born. It's in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament. As the Holy Spirit communicates with disciples of Jesus of all eras. This is how he puts it in James chapter 1 and verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when. How does this work? Something captures the attention of my eyes. And so we heard of Eve in Genesis chapter 3. We could go back to the book of Joshua and we read carefully the language of a man named Achan who lifts up his eyes and sees forbidden treasures that he knows don't belong to him, but he sees it and, and something begins to bubble and boil within his heart. We could go to 2 Samuel and we could talk about King David who is walking on the roof of his palace and he lifts up his eyes, he casts his eyes and he sees someone else's wife. You see, this is how temptation works. The Holy Spirit wants to make sure we get this. Each person is tempted when he is 
lured. And as my eyes begin to open the windows of my heart and I begin to think about my satisfaction and my desires and my delight, what is happening is I am being enticed. Enticed by what? Enticed by my own desire. Then, how do I get myself in trouble? When my satisfaction, my desires, my delight means more to me than God, it is only a matter of time before sin is born. And that's a really big deal. Because from Genesis 3 to 2 Samuel 12 to October of 2021, sin creates a separation between me and the holy God to whom I have communicated my satisfaction means more to me than you. My delight means more to me than delighting in you. My desires are greater than my desires for you. Now the reason, I mean we could replicate this of course billions, trillions, however many times. But the reason that we've gone back this morning to Genesis chapter 39 is there's something special about this young man. And we're told explicitly in Genesis 39 in verse 8, Joseph refused. And so here we are. We've been led to the base of his foundation. And you know, just as surely as I know, what it is at times not to refuse. To go ahead and do whatever it is that I want to do, even though it's wrong. It's one of the reasons that we have gathered this morning in the name of good news. The fact that a Savior gave His body and shed His blood as a sacrifice for my sins. But I told you from the very beginning, sometimes if we're going to build and we're going to build well, if we're going to build in a way that can weather storms and only get stronger, sometimes it's worth studying the foundation of other people. Here's a young man who refuses to do what so many would be so willing to do. So how? For the rest of our time, how? Why? Why did Joseph refuse? Now, quite a few answers that could be suggested. Maybe it's because he's been entrusted with great responsibilities. And, you know, I came down here as a slave and life is getting better and better for me from the outside looking in. Who knows how far this will go? I'm just not sure I'm willing to gamble all of these great things that are beginning to happen in my life. And there's A little bit of that talked about in his answer. Genesis 39 and verse 8, he says to Potiphar's wife, 
Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me. But you see, this young man who is being entrusted with great responsibilities, he knows that doesn't mean that he can just do whatever it is that he wants to do. Not everybody has realized that throughout human history, have they? Not everybody realizes that here in the second half of October of 2021. Many of us very easily buy into the idea, the more important I am, the more license I have to do whatever it is that I want to do. The higher I climb, the more people I have the right to step on. The more elite I am, the more license I have to be rude. Joseph isn't like that. But if we keep digging a little, wanting to get as clear of a view of this foundation as possible, it quickly becomes clear, this is more than, well, I have been given great responsibilities and I don't want to lose that. There's another deeper layer here. He recognizes that some things don't belong to him, including this woman. Notice how he describes her. Notice how he describes her to her. Potiphar is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How does Joseph say no? Why does Joseph say no? Well, he recognizes some things don't belong to me. But I want you to listen to me very carefully. If that is as deep as we dig, we will continue to be slaughtered by temptation. Because it's only a matter of time before however much I have that might be put on the line, something will come along that is just a little more enticing. And I think I'm willing to lay on the line everything that I have, everything that I have been given in order to have that. And even although I know some things don't belong to me, after all, look at how many people around me don't live with any awareness, any care whatsoever about that, I think that somehow I can convince myself if I if I contort my heart just the right way, that I deserve this. Nobody understands how much I've gone through. Nobody realizes the toll that all of this has taken. Nobody will get hurt. We can control this situation. Perhaps it is only once. 
I'm not even sure God is there anymore. And if he is there, wouldn't he want me to be happy after all of the things that have come down the pike that have made my life so miserable? So how, why does Joseph refuse? It's deeper than... I'm a really important person. And it's even deeper than some things don't belong to me. He remembers these fundamental truths. God is, number one. Genesis 39 verse 9. Potiphar is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. And as we dig a little deeper, i got to talk about God. God is. God is in Egypt just as surely as he is in the land that had been promised to Joseph's Great-grandfather, God is in 2021 just as surely as he was 4,000 years ago. God is. Number two, God defines. It is God who describes things as good and bad. Evil and pure, impure and righteous, righteous and wicked. How does Joseph refuse in this moment? Well, he remembers some fundamental truths. God is and God defines, God expects. It would be one thing for God to be and one thing for God to define, but if he doesn't have any expectation of me, what difference does it make in my life? But you see, Joseph remembers, if I do this, this is sin. The God who is has an expectation of me, and I am accountable to him. You see, it's, it's deeper than I've got a lot on the line and if I get caught, this could all go south real quick. It's deeper than you don't belong to me. It's God is. And God defines. And God expects. And I am accountable to him and all of that really 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 matters we're almost i believe to bedrock but i would suggest to you we haven't found the most important thing because even at this point i could convince myself okay I've got a lot on the line. And if I get caught, if we get caught, who knows what life will be like next? And some things don't belong to me, but, you know, uh, there are a lot of people in this world who don't respect that sort of thing. And even I could have in my mind there is a God 
But there are lots of people who believe there is a God who commit great wickedness. In fact, there are a lot of people who believe that God defines and God expects. There have been plenty of women and men throughout the ages who believe at an intellectual level, I am accountable to him and still in the moment wanted adultery and committed adultery. So there's something deeper. And my suggestion is to it, it's how the chapter began. What Joseph had was better than what was being offered. What did Joseph have? I am with you. And just to make sure that we we read this chapter within that light, that's how the chapter begins, and in fact, that's how the chapter ends. It, it's almost like bookends. You want to know why Joseph did what he did? You want to know how Joseph refused in the way that he refused? Here's bedrock. What he had was better than what was being offered. And you see, if, if that's true, it doesn't matter who the other person is. It's not a matter of, well, not with you, but maybe with somebody else. It's not a matter of, not now, but maybe later. It's, what I have is better than what is being offered. I am with you. In fact, that's what God had said to Joseph's grandfather. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. And in fact, that's what God had said to Joseph's father. I am with you. And in fact, that's what God says over and over and over again. Not just to Joseph. In the heart of the Bible. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. How? Why? You are with me. To Israel in their darkest era. Fear not. I am with you. In the age of disciples of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 29 we read, our God is a, a consuming fire. And that, that most certainly plays into this whole thing. God is. And God defines and God expects and I'm accountable to Him. But notice the bookends. Hebrews 12, 29 and Hebrews 13, 5. I am with you. 
And what I want you to see this morning is that that's not just empty religious Sunday morning speak. That defines, that's the bedrock on which we build this week. And so in between those bookends, this is going to define how we love one another. God is with us. This is going to define how we treat strangers. God is with us. This is going to define people around us who, whom we can help, who don't have the advantages or the, the resources, or, or who perhaps are in a, a very deep valley in their lives. God is with me. Listen to me this morning. Listen to God. This defines how we in 21st century America look at marriage. What I want you to see is this is about more than, okay, I need to be reminded on Sunday there is a God. He defines. He expects. I'm accountable to Him. All right. <laughs> now I'm going to live in whatever way I want to live. No. This shapes marriage, my marriage, and how I look at the marriages of, of others. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. The marriage bed is to be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. This defines, this casts light on how I look at stuff in this world. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Well, where's the bedrock on which I'm going to build all this stuff? I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. And as you turn your Bibles with me very quickly to 1 John chapter 2 in your New Testament, we need to be able, I need to be able, you need to be able to say this morning, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. Because guess what? What we've done is gone back and we've looked at the foundation of somebody else. And the fight continues. And this war is a war of love. And the battleground is my heart. And it's your heart. And so, we open up our hearts to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. Where the Spirit continues to save this morning. Notice what he says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father but it's from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now maybe you're like me, and for a very long time, you read 1 John 2, 15, and okay, the primary lens through which I'm viewing this is 
I shouldn't love the world. I shouldn't love the things in the world. The world is full of pride of life, lust of the flesh, desires of the eyes. I shouldn't do that. And so I'm going to gather together with Christians on Sunday. I'm going to remind myself, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't do that. And then I go out into the world and I just keep doing it. <laughs> Why? Why do I keep doing what I know I shouldn't do? And it wasn't until this week that I really saw the end of verse 15. How can someone who has a whole lot of stuff on the line and knows some things don't belong to me and even knows and confesses there's a God and, and he defines and he expects and I'm accountable to him. How does someone continue to do what they know they shouldn't do? Maybe you're also like me and in middle school or high school science class you wondered, will I ever use any of this? Do you remember, maybe your science teacher tried to play a trick on you the way I remember him trying to play a trick on me. He, he held up just an empty glass jar, or in his case, in science class, it was a beaker. And he asked, what is the most efficient way to get all of the air out of this glass? And maybe your class was like my class and we, you know, your mind begins to run wild. Well, maybe we could build some sort of a machine in some sort of a sophisticated science lab and somehow we're going to create just the perfect seal and the perfect vacuum and, and somehow, some way, we'll suck all of the air out of that glass. Then maybe you had a, a science teacher like me who answered that kind of trick question by simply opening up a, a bottle of water and pouring water in that glass. And suddenly now, all of the air is gone. You fill it with water, and all of the air is gone. How can my broken, fractured, prone-to-wonder heart not love this world, not love the things in this world? How can my foolish, self-centered heart Leave this building this morning with something greater than love for the world in it. Could I humbly suggest to you, it's not, it's not a matter of, okay, 
a clearer view of my, my Christian duties and responsibilities. It's bigger than that. It's more than, well, I've got a lot on the line, and if, if, if somehow someone found out the sort of life that I'm living, a whole lot of things would change. It's bigger than that. And it's bigger than... Some things don't belong to me, but I, there are a lot of people who have gotten away with it in the past, and it's even bigger than there is a God. It's a question of, do I have what matters more? In fact, what is more precious than anything that could possibly be offered? I don't know what your favorite verse of the Bible is, but could I suggest Psalm 63 as a, a worthy contender? Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. How can the human heart be freed from its love for the world? It's a delight. It's an affection. It's a hunger. It's a thirst that is new. It doesn't come from within. It doesn't come from me figuring out exactly how to put all of these puzzle pieces together in just the right way. It is a new and a stronger affection that displaces what has so grossly hurt me in the past. And so we're going to sing in just a moment a song of invitation and it is not a an invitation for you to get your life straightened out and it's not an invitation for you to pull yourself up a little higher and stronger and tighter by your own bootstraps and it's certainly not an invitation to come to me as someone who who's got all of this completely flawlessly ironed out but it is an invitation Come to the one who is better than life. And we're given a front row seat to just a little glimpse of that in, in John chapter 4 when another woman often looked down upon by people outside of her tribe, by people within her tribe. She's the lowest of the low. And a whole lot of it has to do with the fact that she's had five husbands and she's living with a man and he's not her husband. And what Jesus does is not simply a reminder there is a God and he defines and he expects and you're accountable to him and hell is hot. You better get your act together. He 
draws her attention to the only thing that can get the love of all of that foolishness out of the glass of her life and will never let her down. Never come up short. In John chapter 4 and verse 13, he said, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And So what are we inviting you to this morning? There's a reason that for generations, disciples of Jesus have sung to each other, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. So we invite you to look to Him this morning. And if there's some way that we can help you in being reconciled to him, if you'd like to be baptized right here, right now, for the forgiveness of your sins, water is ready, clothes are available, you can walk out of this building cleansed from your former sins. But maybe you have been chasing sand and nobody knows it. Maybe you've been drinking hot, dry hurtful sand. And you could use some prayers this morning to get that junk out and replace it with living water. If we can help you in any way, would you let us know how by coming to the front of this room while we stand and sing together.